This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'll begin with disclosures. Uh, I've written a few books that have helped to supplement my academic salary, uh, but I don't have any relationships with the food industry. So we've heard today so far uh, that poverty can create a vicious cycle involving diet quality, food insecurity, disordered eating, biological stresses, and perhaps tie in even with depression and anxiety, uh, correlates with inadequate physical activity and and poor quality sleep amidst these stresses. That creates this vicious cycle that can promote obesity, and in turn, obesity could exacerbate all of these specific components. So today, uh, I'd like to focus on one quadrant of this vicious cycle, how diet quality can produce biological stress that can lead to obesity. But uh, I'm going to suggest that diet can also interact with all of these other components. Uh, High-quality diet can improve to a considerable degree some of these correlates, but we've got to keep sight of the fact that poverty is an overwhelming driver. Income inequality, greater today than it's been in any time in the last half century, or probably since the Great Depression, is of course a major driver here, so we really need to come at this problem from both angles. So according to the first law of thermodynamics, law of physics, energy can't be created or destroyed. And uh, so applied to living systems gives us this familiar equation, calorie intake minus calorie expenditure equals calorie stored, primarily as body fat, since uh, humans have limited capacity to store carbohydrate or protein. So it's mostly increase in body fat that occurs with this positive calorie balance. So according to the conventional way of thinking, obesity is really the failure of individuals to control their calorie balance. So in an environment with ubiquitous tasty foods, it's easy to overconsume, to take in too many calories. But also in this modern environment, we don't have enough opportunity to burn off those calories through physical activity. So that excess builds up as uh, calorie-rich fuels in the bloodstream, glucose, lipids, and such. And then they get forced into fat cells, making them anabolic or making them grow. So the simple solution is, we've heard it a thousand times, eat less and move more. This conventional view places the the responsibility on the individual for controlling their calorie balance. So the USDA says, quote, reaching a healthy weight is a balancing act. The secret is learning how to balance your energy in and energy out. Now we're gonna see that that is in fact quite a well-kept secret. And if you like the calorie balance approach to weight control, you're gonna love a low-fat diet. This is our first food guide pyramid from the height of the low-fat years, 1992 is when this was first published. Because according to this notion, fat has more than twice the calories of carbohydrate, 
uh, or protein. So we should eat all fats. You know, things, even nuts, fatty fish, avocado. All of these fats, olive oil, should be consumed sparingly, as little as possible. And instead, we were told to load up on these mostly highly processed starchy foods. Remember, 6 to 11 servings a day. And throughout the uh, 80s and 90s, up into this century, the focus was placed on reducing dietary fat simply because it, was, it has more calories per bite. Uh, this is the Surgeon General's report that it identified reduction of fat consumption as the primary dietary target. More important than anything else, reducing dietary fat is the most important thing because it's got so many calories. Sugar, which has fewer calories, four calories per gram, was really essentially got a pass. It was considered a secondary concern for susceptible groups, such as children, to avoid dental caries. And experts in leading nutrition associations widely uh, advocated avoiding fat and increasing all kinds of sugars, uh, all kinds of carbohydrates. For example, one review published at the time said, quote, when people are allowed to eat from a range of high-fat or high-sugar foods, passive overconsumption only occurs with fat. It follows that fat promotes overconsumption while sugar probably prevents it. You know, arguing that sugar is a good thing because it dilutes fat calories from the diet. The government, in its Healthy People 2000 goals, specifically called on the food industry to market thousands of new processed foods that were low in fat and saturated fat, total fat and saturated fat. So they're calling on the industry, and if you're going to cut back on fat, you're going to increase processed carbs, starch, and sugar. You know, it's become fashionable today to blame the public for our current nutritional mess, saying that if the public had just, you know, that nobody ever recommended processed foods, if they just ate fruits and vegetables, we'd be fine. It was their fault. Or it was the food industry's fault for marketing these foods. Well, I think that um, tends to conveniently avoid the responsibility from the nutrition establishment for specifically advocating all carbohydrates over all fats. And as a result of this advice, the proportion of fat consumption in our diet went down. The proportion of fat went up. But unfortunately, things didn't work out so well. Because over these years, obesity prevalence exploded. Now, this is uh, not necessarily cause and effect from this data. But actually, the clinical trials suggests that that focus on reducing dietary fat actually made things worse. In meta-analysis after meta-analysis, low-fat diets that were advocated proved to be the least effective of all approaches compared to higher-fat Mediterranean diets, low-carbohydrate diets, very low-carbohydrate diets, or the granddaddy of all high-fat diets called the ketogenic diet. We know that according to conventional approaches, only one in six people can keep off just 10% of their excess weight, 10% uh, uh, of their body weight for at least one year. So that's a pretty small bar to, to hit, and very few people can even accomplish that. Among children, the situation is just as bleak. This review 
uh, noted that uh, among pediatric obesity interventions, they're marked by small changes in weight or adiposity and substantial relapse. So we have to argue, wonder, why is this paradigm, just eat less and move more? It sounds so simple. Why is this paradigm failed in practice? One obvious explanation is that it completely ignores the biological underpinnings of body weight. You know, we know that body weight is affected by multiple hormones and metabolic signals and organs with crosstalk to each other. Such that when somebody, somebody, whether that's a person who is lean or a person with obesity, loses weight from their habitual weight, the body fights back. It fights back in predictable ways with increasing hunger and slowing metabolic rate. And those biological, predictable biological responses push body weight back to where it started. But the opposite is also true. For example, when subjects and volunteers in overfeeding studies are given hundreds or a thousand calories a day too much to eat. You know, at first they sound, think that that's going to be a great study to participate in. I'm going to get paid for overeating. But they quickly lose all interest in food. Their hunger vanishes. They become quite uncomfortable. And their metabolism speeds up in their body's attempt to get rid of those extra calories. And very soon, after the forced feeding ends, uh, their body weight comes right back down to where it started. So that suggests that we have a certain body weight set point, a weight lower for some than for others, that our body just fights to want to be. But if there is this kind of a set point, we have to ask two questions. One, why is this defended level of body weight going up year after year? Why was the average man uh, in the 1960s happy with a body weight of 155 pounds, and today he's defending a body weight on average of maybe 185 pounds? And attempts to get back to that 155 cause this biological pushback. And most importantly, what can we do about it? Well, we know that this conventional, that this, uh, excuse me, this law of thermodynamics that relates calorie intake, expenditure, and body weight can't be wrong. So that's a basic law of physics. But maybe our assumptions about direction are the problem. In other words, maybe the arrows don't flow from left to right, they flow from right to left. Now, this also wouldn't violate the laws of thermodynamics, but it has a profoundly different implication. So according to the carbohydrate insulin model, something has triggered our fat cells to take in too many calories. And so there are actually too few calories in the bloodstream. Remember, in the other way of thinking about it, there are too many calories. But in this way of thinking about it, there are too few calories in the bloodstream. And that's why we get hungry, the brain's response to an energy crisis. And that's why our metabolism slows down, the body's attempt to conserve calories. So from this perspective, just eating less and moving more is at best symptomatic treatment. And it could actually make things worse because it's further going to limit this already low fuel supply. It means that unless you do something differently, you're going to feel worse and worse as you progress further into a weight loss program before your weight goal is anywhere near in sight. And that may explain why people 
uh, fail so frequently. You know, that it's not about willpower or motivation, it's about biology. So what could be triggering our fat cells to be sucking in too many calories? Well, the most obvious hormonal player is insulin, the, I call the miracle grow for your fat cells, just not the miracle you want hap- have happening in your body. Insulin affects the flow of all of the calories that we eat. It affects where fat goes and how it gets stored and where glucose goes and gets stored. States of high insulin action, for example, a child with type 1 diabetes given too much insulin, consistently lead to weight gain. And states of low insulin action, like that child with type 1 diabetes given too little insulin, consistently go along with weight loss. So what could be causing our insulin levels to increase? Well, this is just endocrinology 101. It's all of the processed carbohydrates that flooded into our diet during the low-fat years of the, the, the last few decades. And uh, in terms of carbohydrate, we're talking about the total amount, which we saw has gone up, but also the processing of that carbohydrate, how fast it's digested and turns into sugar. And from that perspective, the term glycemic index is uh, relevance. Glycemic index is something you actually measure after you give people the same, the same relative amount of different carbohydrate-containing foods. And it's basically how high blood sugar rises after the meal. So processed grains, white bread, white rice, as well as potato products, prepared breakfast cereals, low-fat cookies, crackers, chips, all of these foods digest into glucose very quickly in the body. Whereas even foods with a lot of sugar, like whole fruits, may digest much more slowly because the body takes some time to digest that whole food. So uh, beans, most whole fruits, um, uh, dairy products, nuts, well, those don't have a lot of total carbohydrate, but they're very slow digesting. They have a gentle effect on blood sugar. And uh, a perhaps more clinically relevant term is called glycemic load. That's glycemic index times the amount of carbohydrate. So, you know, a carrot might have a high glycemic index. It just happens to have a lot of more easily available sugar. But you don't get a lot of carbohydrate from a serving of carrots. So it's not going to affect your blood sugar very much. Whereas a baked potato, you know, the Idaho russet that's been hybridized for the perfect French fry, that's going to really have a metabolic wallop on our blood sugar and insulin levels. So the bottom line is the processed grains, potato products, and added sugars have a high glycemic load, whereas minimally processed whole kernel grains, whole fruits, beans, dairy, low. So what happens after we eat foods varying in glycemic load? So in this study, we looked at 12 adolescents with obesity, and we gave them on different days three meals with identical calories. One was instant oatmeal breakfast. So highly processed, instant cooking, so fast digesting. Second was steel cutouts. So that's uh, an old-fashioned preparatory method, sometimes marketed as Irish oats. It takes a half hour to cook, but it, t- it digests more slowly. And those two meals had the same 
macronutrients, same calories. And then we had a third meal, which was a vegetable omelet with fruit, had even more fat and more protein, less total carbohydrate. And here's what we found. So blood sugar initially surged as expected after the high glycemic load instant oatmeal. But what goes up must come down. And a few hours later, blood sugar was in effect crashing after that instant oatmeal. And at that same time, another key fuel, so we run out, we're kind of dual fuel ovens. We run on carbohydrate, but we also run on fatty acids uh, or ketones, depending. And fatty acids were su are suppressed after eating by insulin, but then they stay suppressed longer after that high glycemic meal. So that at a key time point, you know, whether you're going to have that extra snack or whether you're going to have an especially large meal uh, subsequently, you're, you, you kind of run out of both fuels. And that leads to a stress response. We were hearing about biological stress. Epinephrine, you know, is one of the key mediators of biological stress. It's that flight or fight-or-flight hormone, adrenaline. It stayed flat after the low and medium glycemic index meals, but surged after the high glycemic meal. And that's going to affect behavior, um, cognitive function, if you're a kid in school. And it's also um, going to indicate a state, uh, a, a biological state, where your body's going to want food fast. And when we gave subjects free access to food, they consumed hundreds of extra calories more after that high glycemic load meal than the other two. If a fraction of this difference were maintained meal after meal, it could explain much of the obesity epidemic. So what happens in the brain when blood sugar and free fatty acids are crashing and adrenaline is surging? Well, we have a way of looking now called functional magnetic resonance imaging. So we, in this study, looked at 12 uh, young men who had a high body weight, and in a double-blind crossover fashion, gave them two milkshakes that appeared the same, same sweetness, but one had uncooked cornstarch. That's a very slow-digesting carbohydrate. And the other had corn syrup. So they both come from corn, uh, but that corn syrup is about as fast-acting a carbohydrate as you can get. And then we did at four hours after the meal. Remember, it's not what happens right after the meal or half hour. That's where a lot of people look. It's what happens later. So here's what happened to blood sugar. You know, we got that surge after the fast-acting milkshake and then the crash. And at that time, people reported being hungrier at four hours. And then brain imaging showed one area lit up like a laser. And that area was called the nucleus accumbens. So for, you know, I'm not a neuroscientist. I didn't know what it was at first either. Um, so for those of you who are also aren't neuroscientists, that's ground zero for the classic addictions, like cocaine, heroin, alcoholism. It's the center of the striato-dopaminergic pleasure and reward system. It determines how much you want something, not necessarily how much you like something, and read Rob Lustig's book for more on that, how much you want it. It's one thing to be hungry, but if your nucleus accumbens is kicking in, it's game over. 
your chance of resisting that 500-calorie cinnamon bear claw are slim to none. What happens in, uh, over the long term? Well, to begin to assess this, we looked at an animal model. Uh, we gave, in this case, rats identical diets. Again, just changing the carbohydrate source from slow to fast-acting. And we further controlled their food intake so that they stayed the same weight. Why did we do that? Well, we wanted to make sure that one group wasn't overeating one of the diets simply because they thought it was tastier. So in this slide, uh, over 18 weeks, that's like about 15 rat years, uh, you could see that the body weight in the two groups, slow and fast-acting carbohydrates, stayed the same. But to accomplish that, we had to begin restricting calories in that high glycemic index group. And why would we, if, you, if, you have to, if you're gaining weight on the same calories, what's happening to your metabolism? Anybody? It's slowing down. Okay. So what we did, what you're supposed to do if you're gaining weight. We put the, we put the rats on a diet, and we prevented weight gain. And despite that, the rats had 70% more body fat and less lean tissue. Now, this is my one graphic slide. These two animals weighed the same. The one on the left ate a slow-acting carbohydrate diet and had virtually no belly fat. The other one's belly filled up with fat. That's the highest risk fat depot, and these animals had sky-high cardiovascular disease risk factors. This finding completely defies the calorie-in, calorie-out view of obesity. Remember, the one on the right was gaining weight too fast. You know, if you didn't know it, you'd say, all right, this is a genetically predisposed animal to obesity. So put it on a diet. We succeeded in preventing weight gain, but despite that, we, we, had profound, we saw profound differences in body composition that have everything to do with chronic disease. And you can rest assured those animals at the right were going to be very unhappy, very hungry. Does this, do these findings occur in humans? Well, to begin to look at that, we did a, uh, a crossover feeding study where with 21 young adults who had been weight-stable, but they were heavy. We brought their weight down by 10 to 15%, and then we put them for a month at a time on a low-fat, medium-fat, or high-fat diet. And we measured their metabolism. And here's what we found. Before weight loss, uh, people were burning off about 3,200 calories a day. They're big. And so that's, you know, they had a high-calorie uh, expenditure. With weight loss on the low-fat diet, their calorie burn plummeted by more than 400 calories a day. How are you going to feel if your metabolism slows down like that? Cold, tired, hungry. But on the low-carb, high-fat diet, calorie expenditure didn't decline at all from baseline. So that difference of 325 calories would amount to potentially 30 pounds difference over about three to five years. Potentially big effect. What about the long-term human studies uh, you know, over many years? Well, here's the classic. Um, Pounds loss study. 800 adults studied for two years, assigned to diets that uh, were designed to differ substantially in carbohydrate, fat, or protein. 35 to 65 percent. 
20 to 40% fat, 15 to 25% protein. This wasn't a feeding study, though. It was behavioral counseling. They told people what to eat. They met with the uh, nutritionists maybe once a month or every two months, uh, predominantly in groups. And then after two years, there was no difference in body weight. So studies like this have given rise to this notion that diet doesn't matter. It's whatever you like. You could lose weight on all diets. That's a false conclusion for one simple reason, that these behavioral studies typically fail to achieve any meaningful differences in diets. You know, in this particular study, the maximum reported intake was less than half of the intended, and that was reported. You know, if you hire, if you recruit somebody to eat a low-fat diet and you uh, tell them to do it, and then you give them financial compensation for doing it, and then you ask them, what are you eating? What are they going to say? You know? So when you actually look at the biomarkers, there were very little differences. And if there were few differences between the diets, why would we expect to see any differences in body weight? Fortunately, there are a few studies that do it better. Um, and this one from Israel, 300 adults at a nuclear power facility where they would come in, check in in the morning, eat at the company cafeteria at lunch, and then leave at the end of the day. So you could affect at least one meal by feeding it to them. And again, this was low-fat, medium-fat Mediterranean or high-fat, low-carb diet. And here the effects, the effects were pronounced. The low-fat diet lost the least amounts of weight. The high-fat diet, the most amounts of weight, exactly the opposite of what we were told, right? And the medium-fat Mediterranean diet was sort of more like the tortoise to the hare. A little slower, but then caught up. So I've told you, I've, I've suggested that another way of thinking about the obesity epidemic, rather than just focus on the left-hand side, which puts the onus on people, is to focus on the right-hand side and understand the biological determinants of body weight through processed carbohydrate effects on insulin, causing, stimulating those fat cells into a feeding frenzy, and leading a, too many calories to wind up in fat cells and too few for the rest of the body. Sort of the graphic version of the, those rodents I showed you. But carbohydrate isn't the only determinant. There are many factors that influence insulin secretion or insulin fats, uh, fat cells directly. So this is a it provides an intellectual infrastructure for thinking more broadly than just carbohydrate on diet. And beyond that, sleep, stress, physical activity affect fat cells, as do endocrine disruptors, these things that we're putting into our environment. So I'll just, uh, as I wrap up, just say ultimately we are obviously thinking more, much more beyond body weight to include chronic diseases, and just with regard to cardiovascular disease, these two, the, the two, the largest low-fat diet studies, Women's Health Initiative Clinical Trial and Look Ahead, put people on low-fat diets, gave them lots of support um, compared to the control, which wasn't given much of anything, so you'd think it was biased to favor the low-fat diet. And both of these studies failed to reduce cardiovascular disease completely against what was assumed to be an obvious conclusion. And compare that to 
this observational study, but a very carefully done one, um, that found that um, basically the more fat people were eating, and this much of the data came from the low-fat era, the 80s and 90s, when people eating low-fat diets were actually healthier. They, had, they, they were more health-oriented, so they would have been exercising more, taking vitamins and so forth. So if anything, this study would be biased in the other direction. They found that the more fat people were eating, the longer they lived. Those adhering to a low-fat diet had increased premature mortality. So suggesting that our low-fat diet, as it was put into practice and advised, didn't just make us heavy, it might have shortened our lives. And unfortunately, the public is suffused with this image. Uh, the majority of the public is still afraid of eating fat. It's not surprising. We were told to be low-fat for so many years. The school lunch program lets you serve sugary milk as long as it's fat-free, but you can't order plain whole milk. And th th these situations persist. So in summary and conclusion, improving diet quality may be less arduous and more successful than calorie restriction. A simple approach to lower insulin and to promote weight loss is to focus on these highly processed carbohydrates and replace them with healthy, high-fat foods. Nuts and nut butters, full-fat dairy, olive oil, rich sauces and spreads. Real dark chocolate. Come on. Delicious, nutritious. These, these foods are associated with reduced diabetes and heart disease risk. Um, this may also lessen food cravings and plug into reducing biological stress and, in a certain way, food insecurity, although we have to address the fact that these whole foods are oftentimes more expensive. Um, we need higher quality research. And in my closing thought is a quote from editors of a leading medical journal, and they wrote the following. When we read that the fat woman has the remedy in her own hands, or rather between her own teeth, there is an implication that obesity is merely the result of unsatisfactory dietary bookkeeping. Although logic suggests that body fat may be decreased by altering the balance sheet through diminished intake or increased output or both, the problem really isn't so simple and uncomplicated as it is pictured. These words were written by the editors of JAMA in 1924. Thank you for your attention. Please follow me on social media. And I understand that we have some time for questions. Uh, one of the great problems is compliance. How do you deal with adherence in your work? Well, you know, I think we have to distinguish clinical care from research. You know, in research, we want to understand, we want to de develop generalizable knowledge. We want to understand how the body works so that we can formulate the best public policy. You know, I gave you an example. I've argued, obviously, that the largest public health experiment ever conducted in history, the low-fat diet, was based on erroneous assumptions and faulty research, improperly interpreted research. We spent billions and probably produced harm. So we have precious limited funds, especially in this era, for public health intervention. We want to get it right, and we want to get right across the population. We also want to understand if there's um, important diet-phenotype interactions. In other words, one diet might not fit all. Some people might be especially susceptible to processed carbohydrates, or other people too much protein. It could be gut microbiome interactions. 
we need that science. And unfortunately, nutrition research has been starved of funds on a, you know, a threadbare budget. The, in, the, food, the drug industry snaps its fingers, and with some promising data from the laboratory, from the rodent laboratory, can put $100 million or more into a drug clinical trial. Most nutrition research studies limp along at, you know, you're lucky if you have a budget of $100,000 a year. And so on the cheap, we get poor quality research, such as these behavioral trials. Ultimately, we need to understand how these diets work in a real life setting, but first we need higher quality research to see what's really happening when we take compliance out of the equation. And then we go back to say, all right, now we know how the body works and what's best. Let's figure out how we can motivate and support people to pursue those more healthful, healthful diets. And that will involve changing the environment and food policy to make those different foods more accessible. Hi. My name is Majine. I'm a second-year law student here at UCLA. Um, and I have two questions. The first is, is it your contention that all fats are created equal in the sense that they all have positive impacts? Um, and also, is it your contention that whole food plant-based carbohydrates, such as the russet potato, um, are just as harmful as, like, oatmeal? Okay. Um, well, congratulations on your studies, and we need some very good um, public health-oriented lawyers to um, help us through this uh, you know, policy morass. Uh, in the case of fats, no, I think just as all carbohydrates aren't created alike, uh, you know, if you just think simplistically about energy balance, all carbohydrates are good, all fats bad. Wrong. Uh, but the same is true for fats. Well, we of course know that trans fats are the closest thing to poison in the food supply, and they're fortunately um, well on their way out of the food supply, although it's still an issue uh, for some processed foods. Um, and then there is a, you know, a lot of controversy about polys, polyunsaturated, so that's multiple double bonds. And then there's the omega-3s, which everybody likes, and we, all, we, we clearly underconsume. The omega-6s, which some people think, well, maybe we overconsume, but then there's other data to suggest, you know, as long as you're getting enough omega-3s, eat as much omega-6s, that's fine. And you get monos, like olive oil. People like those. Those look pretty good. Uh, and they also, sources of monounsaturated fats, like olive oil, carry along other health-promoting substances. When you see that green in extra virgin olive oil, admittedly an expensive item for people with low income, but that's a rich brew of antioxidants and anti-inflammatory chemicals. And then the real controversy is around saturated fat. Uh, some people say it's really not an issue at all. Yes, it raises LDL cholesterol, but it raises HDL cholesterol too, and it lowers triglycerides. Other people point out that saturated fats are inflammatory. And, um, and the epidemiology does suggest increased risk. Uh, so we need really good studies there. And it may be, there may be an interaction, that if you're eating a low-carb diet, the saturated fat may be less harmful than if you're eating that saturated fat with sugar and starch, then you get a huge inflammatory wallop to your, your biology. Um, and then lastly, about plant-based, you know, oh, the russet potato? You know, yes, it, you could 
technically take a russet potato out of the earth, cook it, and call that a whole food. But that's not how the Inca ate these little highly fibrous purple potatoes you know, um, 500 or 1,000 years ago. These have been hybridized to make the perfect McDonald's french fry. And um, you know, they really resemble, like corn. Corn resemble, does not resemble you know, the uh, South American version of that crop. And so they're so hybridized that I really uh, I, I hesitate to call, call them whole foods from a physiological perspective anymore. Time for one more question. And we're looking right here in the front. Um, I'm just curious, um, currently I'm dealing with hypothyroidism, so I'm just curious of your take, if you've done a study with hypothyroidism and a specific diet that worked best for that, or things that you've noticed with people with that condition. You know, that we could probably have a whole day's conference on that question. Hypothyroidism is very common, uh, more so among women, um, but men get that too. And... um, there are some very classic uh, hormone conditions like Hashimoto's thyroiditis that cause hypothyroidism and can be simply treated with replacement therapy. Um, so one question that comes up is, you know, are all of the autoimmune inflammatory conditions that we're getting today fueled by our inflammatory diet with all these processed carbs and poor quality fats and maybe poor quality proteins and not enough micronutrients and the wrong gut microbiome and endocrine disruption. So that's a really interesting and important question. It's also true that on a low-carbohydrate diet, thyroid hormone levels drop, but they don't drop causing a problem. In fact, I showed you that energy expenditure actually increases. So what does that suggest? Dr. Lustig, that we might actually be, on a low-carbohydrate diet, have more thyroid sensitivity and leptin sensitivity. That's an interesting area. It doesn't really involve your question directly, but, you know, I think my simple answer is that, you know, we need to not disregard the very conventional medical aspects, getting our thyroid properly diagnosed and treated, while pursuing a really healthful diet. And you know what? If the thyroid condition resolves on its own, we might not know in any one individual case, but we get to enjoy good health as a result. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.